So this morning, um, turn with me to Zechariah again. We're going to be reading from chapter 2. And this uh, is called The Promise. That's what today's message is titled. Um, and I know that some of you were not here last week, uh, so I will give you a recap of what we went over. We were talking about um, Zechariah uh, chapter 1, 1 through 6 was what we read, right? Um, and I don't like to, to leave you guys with conflict without resolution. Neither does the Bible, neither does God. So he gives us a, revol- a resolution with everything that we do. And so this morning, um, I want us to look at Zechariah chapter 2. Uh, and before we do so, I will recra- recap the old one. All right, so last week we looked at Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. Uh, if you guys remember correctly, uh, God established his sovereignty to us by saying that he was the Lord of hosts, which means that he is God Almighty, Lord over the heavenly armies, right? Uh, and then what happened was he gave a word to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah came about only two months after Haggai. So Haggai, if you remember, was the one who was telling them to rebuild the temple, right? Anyone? We got that? Okay, rebuild the temple, not to focus on our purse with holes, but rather rebuild God's temple. Zechariah came along with a message that goes along with it, but takes it a bit further, which was to return to God. He didn't just want us to build a temple, he wanted us to return to him. And so uh, what he was instructing us to do was to give our heart back to God, to be devoted, to be devout, to give him what was never ours, right? So he did that by establishing his sovereignty. He said it five times that he was the Lord of hosts. So you know when Jesus or God in this particular instance says, I am the Lord of hosts, that he is uh, meaning some serious business, right? So then he does so, and then he asks us to return to him so that he can return to us, right? And so that he promises that when they return to him, or in our case, when we return to him, that he will do the same for us. And so last week I put a question out to everyone are you willing to return to him? Are you willing to give him your heart, your devote your life and your whole being to him, right? Um, and so I left it there, right? And that message that was for them in 520 BC is the same that the message is today as it was in Jesus' time. Will you repent? Repent means to return, to turn around and to look towards God, right? And so in this particular case, I left it with that. But there's a reason why we need to return to God. There is a a promise that comes along. It came along in Zechariah chapter 2, and and, and it will come up again here in a second. And that promise worked for them for one purpose, but then it works for us for another purpose too. There's a duality to it, as with most of the things in uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament for this matter. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Zechariah chapter 2. We're going to read the entire thing of Zechariah 2. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, I will let you know that we will be bouncing back and forth through the fullness of the Bible today. So we will be going to Genesis all the way to Revelation. So we will be uh, giving your Bible a workout. So your spine will get a little break in if it's been a little rusty this week, right? Uh, So this week, uh, we're going to start with Zechariah 2. We're going to read verse 1 through verse 13. And this is the the point. The main point comes from this part here. Uh, So let's look at this together. It says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, 
and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as far as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you, you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah at its portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. <clears throat> so, uh, anybody confused? Yeah? Okay. So, to give you a little background, um, after Zechariah comes along, right, in 520 B.C., two months after Haggai, he starts preaching uh, the word to return to him. So, he's telling the same people that Haggai is telling to build the temple to return to God, right? And then what happens is he gets a series of visions, right? He's these series of dreams. And this, this one in particular is the third of the visions. Uh, he sees uh, a horse with a rider on it, a lot of apocalyptic stuff, and then some things that reference the, the coming messianic king that we know as Jesus. This particular book right here, chapter 2, is talking about a very specific thing. And I think this is the pinnacle of all of Zechariah, right? So earlier we learned that if we return to God, he will return to us. And this chapter is explaining what that return looks like. So what we have to understand is we are giving God everything. And when we give God everything, he will bless us. And it's sometimes we confuse that, right? Sometimes we think, oh, he's going to bless us with things in this life. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case, not in our time, right? He's promising us a kingdom in the future. And so this particular chapter focuses on what that kingdom will look like. Uh, it's something that we don't talk about a lot in churches. <laughs> we don't dive too much into revelations as much as we should uh, to make sense of the things that are coming. But in this particular case, we're going to be talking about the promise. And that promise is, to the Jews, a new Jerusalem. And to us is the kingdom of God, right? Uh, so in this first half, verses 1 through 5, this is a sort of introduction to this. We, we are greeted with this vision, right? And Zechariah is basically talking to an angel. An angel is walking him through these. Kind of like in Daniel, where, where there's uh, someone explaining to him what's happening. The same thing is happening in Zechariah. Someone is explaining to him what he is seeing. And this angel is explaining to him that he's measuring the walls around Jerusalem. Right? He's measuring it. But then he says something kind of crazy. He's like, we're not going to build a wall. right? Uh, rather, we're going to build a wall of fire. God's glory, right? And so in our traditional world, or especially in America right now, since we, walls are a big thing that we like to talk about, uh, we build walls to keep people out, right? Uh, but God's wall is slightly different. It is to keep people in. God's wall is to keep the people who will be in, in. But he doesn't need a physical wall to do it. Rather, he's going to build a wall of fire, right? So this angel is explaining to him he's going to build this wall of fire. And so then in the second half, he takes him into the city, the city, the New Jerusalem, right? And he talks about what it's going to look like. So what we're going to focus on today is verses 10 through 13. Because this is the kind of the key, right? This is the, the payoff of everything. So we're going to look at this part. We're going to dive a little deeper. 
And we're going to reference the Old Testament and the New Testament a little bit to kind of get the fullness of what God wanted for us. Now, as we just read in the Catechism, we read that we were created in God's image, right? Uh, and if you remember correctly, if we turn to Genesis uh, 3, right? Turn to Genesis 3, verse 8. Uh, there's this little passage, and this is right after they've eaten the fruit. And uh, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Okay, so let's take this for a second. God is with them, right? He's in the garden with them. He's not in some distant place. He's walking around the garden. And so what we have to realize is from the very beginning, God wanted us to be in his midst, in his presence, right? He didn't want this distance between us, yeah. right? So, so what happens? They, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Why did they do that? Sin. Sin and God cannot exist together. So they were ejected from the garden, right? So God's idea of returning to us is to returning to us with a place without sin. He wants to walk in the garden with us. He wants to dwell with us. As it was said in the Catechism, he wants us to be uh, joined with him in one, right? There's all these pictures in the New Testament that paints the, the church as the, the bride of Christ. Well, when you talk about Genesis 1 again, or when we're talking about specifically the, the union between man and woman, they leave their families and become one, right? So he wants to dwell with us in his midst as one, not separate. He wants to be with us. So I pulled this out just so we would get an idea. From the beginning, God wanted us to be in union with him, to be right there with him in our midst. And sin is what has forced us out. And so what comes next is rebuilding Jerusalem so that we can be in that place with him, right? So as we look at these next few verses, this is the picture we're painting. We want God to be with us. We want to walk with us. That's his idea of returning to us. And so we'll establish this a little bit more. So let's look at verse 10 in uh, Zechariah chapter 2. So it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Right? So first and foremost, he's promising us that he will dwell in our midst. The Hebrew word for midst means literally the center of everything. Right? So he's going to come and be in the center of us. So we can look at this two separate ways. If we are in a city, then we would say the midst would be the center of that city or the capital of a state or the capital of uh, a country. It would be the place where all everything flows out of. Right? But then, too, in our own lives, the center would be our hearts. Right? So he wants to dwell not only in the midst of us and our presence, but in the midst of our hearts as well. And so what is happening is that we're seeing this picture where God is saying, look, I want to be with you and union with you, just like it was in Genesis with man and woman. I want you to be my bride. I want to be one, to join with you in one. So we know part of this has already happened, right? We know that, that he did come and he did dwell in our midst, right? He was there. He walked on the earth. Uh, John 1.14 says... And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So Jesus came. He fulfilled this, right? Right, right here, he fulfilled this prophecy. But the interesting thing about Zechariah and the interesting thing about a lot of the Old Testament prophets is there's more layers to it. He will come again, right? Jesus even said that he would come again. So there's duality to this passage. When he says, I will come and dwell in your midst, he did that. He came. He died on the cross. He gave his life for us so that we could live in union with him. But then he's going to come again, right? And he's going to come again for us so that we can be in unison with him. Let's look at uh, Matthew 25. So keep Zechariah 2, just kind of bookmarked here. We're going to look at Matthew 25. Um, And if you're familiar with this passage, you'll know this is the one where he says, truly, I I said to you, as you've done for the least of these, you've done for me, right? And there's a little bit before that. That's the end of this passage. We're going to look at, at verse 31, okay? So, and this is Jesus talking. Jesus is saying this himself. In verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm here right now, but I'm going to come again. I'm going to come with the host. I'm going to come with the angels, and then I'm going to sit on my throne. I'm going to establish my place amongst you. I'm going to dwell with you. He's basically telling them, look, this here is temporary. I'm here with you. I'm here to do a specific task. But when I come back, I will not just be coming back as a man. I will be coming back as king to dwell with you, right? And so we have this, this, this picture of Jesus coming in with his angels, right? He's telling us that's what he's going to do. He's going to come in with the heavenly host, right? And he's going to bring about this new kingdom. Well, what does the new kingdom look like? Well, the kingdom is a place without sickness, without death, without sin, uh, without lies, without idolatry, right? And so when we're thinking about that line of fire that he's building around it, that line of fire is to keep those things out, Amen. right? Because what we established from Genesis is that God cannot live with sin. They cannot exist together. So when God comes to establish his throne, and sit, sit on his throne, he's establishing a kingdom without those things. Amen. So let's look a little further into Matthew 25. So we'll read 31 um, through through 34. And we'll kind of establish this little point here, and then we'll uh, come back to this. So um, let's see. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another. A shepherd separate the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king keyword there, the king, will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay, before we dive any deeper in that, let's look at verse 11 of Zechariah. And this will kind of give you a little bit of a better picture, I guess. So after he's established that he's going to come dwell in our midst, in verse 11, he says, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Right here, he's saying this is not just for Jews, right? He's saying many nations, which is what he just said in Matthew, all nations. So this doesn't just extend to them. This is now extending past them. If you're in this time period in 520 B.C., you're thinking, okay, this is for us. We're going to build a temple, and God's presence is going to come fill this temple, right? And that's what he meant for them, 
And then he also meant that Jesus would come and redeem them. And then after Jesus, he was going to offer a pathway for Gentiles to come as well, which is us. And so now he's saying that we're extending the border, right? This border is being extended to all nations, right? So everyone is included in this. So when we go back to Matthew 25, and we're looking at this, it says, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus will become a king, he will become a shepherd, right? These are words that are used quite often in the Bible, especially in Matthew, when we're talking about Jesus and, and his roles. As a shepherd, your role is to pick out the good from the bad, right? You only want the best of the litter to put forth. So he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep will sit at the right hand, the goats at the left. So what, what, is, what is Jesus doing here? He's separating the people. This is what we call the day of judgment, right? Judgment will come, and he will take us, and he will separate those who have returned to him from those who have not returned to him. And the ones who have returned to him will move into this new place, inside the walls, right? So we're not outside of the walls where the fire is keeping us out. Rather, we're inside the walls. So we will go inside. And it says he'll place his sheep on his right, which anytime something is put on their right or used a right hand in the Bible, is, is, is a, it's like an old Hebrew covenant. When you use your right hand, that's something powerful, right? It's saying that this is your strong arm. So he will use the right hand to bring us in, but the goats will be on the left. So they'll be cast out. And the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The ones who are in, inherit the kingdom, right? The ones who are out, we'll get to that later. <laughs> but the thing is, the point that we're making here is that uh, everyone is invited. It's not, just, it's not just Jews, it's everyone. So the Jews and Gentiles are invited into this union, into this kingdom. The only thing that they have to do is to return to him. If we remember anything about Abraham, he was promised that through his family, all of the nations would be blessed, right? Yeah. And I think they got that a little confused sometimes, especially when they're talking about when they're sons of Abraham. They got that a little confused. They thought, like, we're going to be blessed, and that's it. But the reality was, is through his family, he was going to pass that lineage down to where all of us were included in this. Amen. And it is, it is pivotal to say that, because especially in the Old Testament, when we're talking about promises for the Jews, to, he's reminding them at this point in time, this isn't just for you, this is for everyone, right? This is a unified thing. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. It's, it's 12 through 14. Uh, it says, Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. He's talking to Gentiles here. That's us, right? Uh, he says, Having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Jesus has taken down the wall, right? We think of walls as, once again, to keep people out. He's taking down that wall and rebuilding a new one, the wall of fire, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Are you a sheep? Are you a goat, right? <laughs> that's the question of the day. And that's what we'll be getting into a little more as we go forward. So it's important to remember that Jesus will come again. He says it himself. Zechariah prophesies about it. And we'll establish a kingdom. He will be the shepherd separating us from each other. Now, let's look at verse 12. Uh, and this is another key verse here. 
It says, And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So what we have to understand first and foremost, to this group of people, they were exiled, right? They left Jerusalem. Their holy land was taken from them by the Babylonians, later by the Persians. They were returning out of exile to build this temple. They'd been given the opportunity to come back. So this is a grand promise to them, that that God will choose Jerusalem again. And he's about to do it in this time period so they can rebuild the temple. And then he will also choose them as the place where Christ will come to suffer, right? And then later on, he will use them as a launching pad for his new idea, his new vision of the world. And so Jerusalem is key because they are, we'll say it this way, they are the capital of everything we know. It's the capital of Jews, it's the capital of Christianity. It's where everything comes to one place. So Jerusalem plays this very important role. So in order to get the biggest picture of this, we're going to turn now to the daunting book of Revelation, (laughs) right? So turn with me to Revelation 21. Um, I will be honest with you, I was one of those people who, for the longest time, did not like Revelation. Uh, I had my qualms with it. It's full of mystery and all these things, right? Uh, But now as I've read it over and over and over and over again, I love this book. (laughs) I admittedly love this book in all of its uh, strangeness. Um, so this is uh, a, basically, Revelation is a, a book that is given after Jesus passed away. It's a vision to John of Patmos. And basically, uh, again, another angel is walking him through uh, what, the, what we call the end times will look like, right? Like these time periods that will usher in a presence, something new will come up from it. Um, and in this particular part, this is the end of Revelation, uh, we are looking at what God is describing as the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. This is the promise that he's giving us. This is where he will return to us, right? So we're going to read all of 21. It's a little long, but I think we can do it, right? Um, and there's a few things that we will kind of put together. And I want you also, it's one thing, since we just read Zechariah 2, I want you to look at this and think, okay, how much of this is familiar? How much of this sounds familiar? Because there's a lot going on that are like parallels in this particular case. All right, so... In verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. We'll stop right there. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Right? Uh, so there's something new coming from this. When Jesus comes in, once again, he's creating all things new. So he's creating something new. So in verse 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Does this all sound familiar? It sounds like what we just kind of read in, in Zechariah 2, right? Uh, so what are, we, what are we realizing here? Jesus will come. When he comes, he will establish a new Jerusalem. There will be a new Jerusalem on a new heaven and a new earth. Everything's new, right? All of this old, broken world will essentially be replaced with something new. And the dwelling place of God will be with us. 
with man, right? It's the key word right here in verse 3. The whole, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them as theirs. So that's that, that unity, right? When we're talking about marriage, that man and woman come together as one, right? And they are no longer separated. They are one unit. That's how we as Christians understand marriage. Uh, that is how it is described in the Bible. And so we, as God's people, are his bride. So when he comes, we will be in unison, and he will dwell in the center of us, right? And then here's this great part right here. Uh, it says in verse 4 here, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Why have they passed away? Because they are all sins. <laughs> They're all sin. Death is a product of sin, right? Uh, mourning and crying is a product of sin. Pain is a product of sin. All of these things cannot exist in Christ. They cannot exist. And so in order for him to be with us and to dwell with us, those things have to be eradicated, which is why the old earth has to be eradicated, why the old Jerusalem has to be eradicated, because sin dwells amongst us. And then in verse 5 it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He's telling them to write. He's, he's telling John, Hey, you, dude, key this in. This is, this is good. This is trustworthy. This is true. I am telling you. This is a promise, right? The promise. That's what we're talking about. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I hate to bring this to you, but we have to talk about it. If you don't return to God, you are living in a life of sin. It's just that simple. If you don't devote your, your, your heart to God, then you are amongst the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and liars, right? You will be cast into a lake of fire. That's not fun. I don't like presenting that information, but the reality is that it's true. It's what he says. It's that it's trustworthy and true. So when we're talking about Jerusalem, we're talking about that border and that perimeter of fire. Fire purges things, right? Fire burns things. And so that fire that keeps us in will keep others out. And that's why when we look at Matthew 28, and we're talking about going into the world and making disciples, it is important that we take that as well. We're not just supposed to sit here in church and be like, gosh, I got God, right? We're supposed to give that out to other people so that other people will not suffer this fate. <laughs> we do not want our friends. We do not want our family. We don't even want the person we don't like to go through this, right? We don't want any of them to go through this because this is the second death, an eternal lake of fire. That is awful. And so it's our duty in this life to save them from that fate. That is what we were commissioned to do. In fact, that was like the only thing that we were commissioned to do after we were given our sanctification. So let's continue on to the better part of this promise, right? We had to get that out of the way, but we're going to get into what is called the New Jerusalem. This is very specific to Zechariah 2. This is exactly where the promise kicks in. Then came one of the seven angels 
who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Here it is again, that's a recurring theme in this. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So this new Jerusalem is coming out of heaven. It's, it's in the same location, right? Like it's, it's on, on the other side of the mountain, right? But it's still coming down from heaven. So this is no longer the old one. This is no longer the old stone-walled thing that they've created. This is something completely new. Uh, and it says, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So here he is, he's promising again that the 12 tribes of, of Judah will be returned to this. They will be back in this. He's never going to forget them. Uh, as he promised before, all things will come through them. They still have to return to him, though, uh, but that still comes through them. And it says, On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So here we got the twelve apostles mentioned again in this, too. Right? These are the ones who launched Christianity to us. They're the ones who gave us the books at which we study. If we look at Acts 2 in particular, they dedicate their lives to the apostles' teachings. That's where this is coming from. And so in verse 15, it says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, and its length the same as its width. And he measured the city next to his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and a height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopheris. Whatever. The 11th, Jacinth, and the 12th, Amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. You're seeing all these 12s, right? Like we're getting this, this fullness, right? We've got the 12 tribes of Judah, the 12 gates, the 12 apostles. It's kind of all is making sense of all those numbers that were in the Bible beforehand. And then it says, and I saw no temple in the city, right? This is the crazy part. There's no temple there. There's nothing. Like, they've built a temple. They spent their entire lives trying to build this temple. But this Jerusalem doesn't have one. And then it says, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There he is in the center. The temple is God himself, right? Uh, he is the, uh, the one who all radiance comes from. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So God is literally the power source for the new Jerusalem. He's not just the temple. He is the power source. He is the fuel to the fire, the thing that gives it life, right? Uh, so by its light will the nations walk. Here are all the nations again. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there, right? A world without no without night. It's almost like uh, Alaska in the summer, right? Like it just keeps going and going and going. But we're not going to need to sleep, so it's, it's all good, right? We're going to be here for one purpose, and that is to worship God. They will bring into the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing, here's the key, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
So for some, this is intimidating, right? We read these scriptures and we're thinking, oh, man, that's a lot, there's a lot of judgment going on in here. But that was intended to give us peace, that we will go into a world without sin, that these earthly bodies that hold us back from God's presence will be eradicated. And instead, we will be lifted into a place without sin, without the sting of death, yeah. right? Without all those things that keep us back. So last week when I was giving you that, that message of returning to God, I really wanted to continue, but, you know, it's time. <laughs> it's the time thing. And so in Zechariah 2, we're seeing that we're continuing into a new Jerusalem, a new world, a new place in which God has eradicated everything and made all things new. So you probably know someone who's sick. You probably know someone who uh, maybe has problems or addictions. Those will be gone. <laughs> they will be gone. And so that's something that we should rejoice in, right? We should rejoice in that fact. So let's take a look again at uh, Zechariah. We'll go back to Zechariah. So the big question becomes, how do we get there? And then the answer is the same as it was last week when we were looking at Zechariah 1. And uh, the Lord of hosts had returned to me and I will return to you, right? But what does that mean? What does that look like? <laughs> like how, how does that work? How do we return to God? In Zechariah 2, and in verse 7, it says, Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. And this is the key. This is where it all comes together, right? God is telling us to leave behind Babylon. Um, Babylon at the time was a... a, a, a regime that had taken over several countries, including Israel, right? They had taken over them, they had destroyed them, they had taken their things. And so Babylon was looked at as a great evil in the Jewish world uh, because they had, they had done an injustice to them. Uh, but Babylon um, means more than just that, right? In, in the, the Bible as a whole, it's a way of typifying human opposition to God, Sin, right? So it's a way of saying that you are running from God. So in this particular case, when it says uh, to escape to Zion, it's saying go to God, leave behind Babylon, or leave behind your Babylon. So when we're thinking about our lives, uh, there's probably something in everyone's life that is a Babylon, right? Something that has a hold of you. So Babylon had a hold of the Jewish nation, and they couldn't escape it. Right? They were part of that regime, right? We have those same issues today. It may not look like a country in our particular case, but it comes in the form of idolatry. It comes in the form of sin. It comes in the form of addictions. Uh, for, for some, it comes in the form of pornography. It comes in a lot of different things. Those are our Babylons. And he's asking us to escape them, to go to Zion. There's this book uh, that I read when I was a child, and I've been reading it again as an adult. I realized that I had read... Uh, the children's version when I was a kid, and so now I'm trying to read the, the adult version of it. Uh, it's called Pilgrim's Progress. It's an old, an old time, old timey book. It was written by John Bunyan. Uh, he was a, a pilgrim, a Puritan, uh, and he had this. Basically, it's an allegory for Christ, right? The whole thing. An allegory meaning it's a representation of a Christian's walk. Uh, and he's so straightforward with it. The main character's name is Christian, right? Like so, this guy named Christian meets. Jesus, essentially, or meets a preacher who gives him Jesus. And then the entirety of the book, he is trying to get to Zion. He's trying to get to the promised land, right? Uh, so he goes through all these different ups and downs, and he's carrying a weight on his back. He's got a bag full of things that he's carrying with him. 
Uh, and he starts to realize that these are holding him back. And then even some of the people along his path that he meets are holding him back. Some of them help propel him into Zion. Some uh, hold him back. And so the whole purpose of the book is to give Christians an idea of what their walk with Christ is like. We're trying to get to Zion, just as it says. We're trying to leave behind our Babylon. Uh, and sometimes that comes in different forms. So if you're carrying a weight on your shoulders, it's time to let it go, right? Uh, and in the book, he even leaves behind his family. Right? His family is holding him back, right? And, and, it, and there's something uh, about that in the New Testament where, where Jesus is saying that if you don't love me more than your family, your, your wife, your, your daughters, your sons, that you won't see the kingdom of heaven, right? He's basically saying you will not see it. Uh, and he doesn't mean that you're supposed to hate them. No, <laughs> that's not what he means. He just means that you're supposed to be focused on me. Uh, there's a sequel to The Pilgrim's Progress where he goes back for his family and then his wife ends up joining him in Zion, right? That's, the, that's how it plays out. Uh, but at the same time, it is a journey that we have to do. We have to let go of the baggage, our Babylon that sits on our shoulder. And so um, when we look at Zechariah 1.3, as we did last week, and it says, return to me, that's what he's saying. He's saying, let go of this bag and go to Zion. Zion is always seen as the heavenly place in heaven. It's... it's God's perfect place, or the new Jerusalem, right? So return to Zion is what he's asking. So um, let's look at Hebrews. There's something we're going to see in here that's going to kind of relate to this right here, and then we'll go. So Hebrews 12 is what we're going to look at. This is, I think, in all honesty, like the best summary of a Christian's walk and journey right here, right? This This is it summed up. So we're going to read Hebrews 12, uh, 1 through 2. Um, It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and then here's the key part, let us also lay aside every weight, right, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I love Paul because Paul always has a way of working the gospel into everything that he says, right? So it doesn't matter what he's saying, he can always find a way to get back to Jesus dying on the cross for us, right? So what is he saying here? He's saying, we must run with endurance the race that is set before us. So once you have been converted, right, you have accepted Christ into your heart, then you must go on this journey to leave your Babylon, right? To let loose of the sin that clings so closely to us. And for all of us, that looks different because we all have different journeys. So you need to ask yourself, what is it that is holding you back from the New Jerusalem? What, what could possibly be a, a burden to you getting in, right? Because when we look at the sheeps and the goats, the goats are the ones with spots and blemish. The sheep are the ones who are pure. If we want to be inside the perimeter of fire, then we have to find our way to be a sheep. And so we have to leave behind this baggage. So when we, going back to Revelation, again, I'm going to use this passage. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. This is from 22, and this is near the end, right? This is verse 14. And it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So right here, we're getting this lesson, right? 
Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. So we can just walk right through. If this is a gate, we can just walk right in it, right? We don't have to find a way around it. We don't have to try to jump over a line of fire, right? Which is not going to work out in our favor. Uh, in the book, The Pilgrim Pro Pilgrim's Progress, there's a wall and there's two individuals who try to like cheat their way over and climb out, but they end up, it doesn't work out for them, right? <laughs> like they're trying to get over into this place so they can get a shortcut and it doesn't work that way. And so this is saying that we must wash our robes so that we have the right to just enter through the gates so that we will be in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? And so when we're looking at Zechariah, we're seeing this fullness of what the new Jerusalem is, this new promise, this promised land that is promised to us, a place without sin, a place without death, the place we all want to be. We have to realize that in order to do so, we have to do the same thing that he promised in the beginning of Zechariah, which is to return to him. It's the theme that goes to the entirety of the book. No matter how you look at it, everything is about returning to God, right? As we talked about last week, we are not our own. God created us in his image, right? He spoke his word into us. His word, as he says, is trustworthy and true, will be the beginning and the end. It's the Alpha and the Omega. It's there, right? And so all we simply do is just submit. We just say to, our, <laughs> to God, we just welcome him into our lives and just say, look, I will walk on the path that you have given me, yeah. right? I will run with endurance the race that you have set yeah. before me. I will stop my opposition. I will not try to do something outside of that, but I will instead accept and run the race. So the reason why I'm talking about this is because none of us know when this will happen, right? Even Jesus says, I don't even know the day nor the hour. Only the Father knows. It's a predetermined time that none of us are aware of. Now, there's clues all in the Bible, but I'm not going to predict because it says not to, right? <laughs> but there is one key thing in, in, in Revelations 21 that says the earth has passed away. There's going to come a time where war will rage, right? And, and people will destroy each other. There will come a time where our environment will become unlivable. These are things that scientists tell us exist. They're in, within, uh, within our worldview. <laughs> They're within reach at this point. I'm not saying it's going to happen. But what we know for sure is that this old world, the world of sin, will die. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. <laughs> like, I'm not saying we should usher it in by any means, but I'm saying that that is a good thing. That is something to look forward to. Because as we, those who have chosen God, and God has chosen us, right? He is predestined for us to be on this journey with him. We will be in that new Jerusalem. And so for us, that's, that's great. That's great news. But it is sort of strange. Why, why do these things happen? Why, do, why does torment, why do these things have to happen, right? And it's all because of the fall. It all started in Genesis. Yeah. When we decided in a blatant act of opposition to God's word that we had the right of our own. And that's what all of sin stems from. Literally every part of sin is when we say that we know better than God. So that's what this is all about, to stop that opposition, to stop that craziness. We don't know better than God. His word spoke you into life. Amen. His word created man and woman out of dust, out of a rib, right? He knows better than us. And he knows when this will happen. He knows when it will come and when we'll be ushered into that new Jerusalem. So let's, let's read a passage from Psalms, and we'll end it on this. This is Psalm 2. We read Psalm 1 earlier, and now we're digging a little deeper. We're going one over, right? 
<laughs> so um, in Psalm 1, as we were, the song that we were singing today, actually all the songs we were singing today, I don't know if you caught, there's like a key theme there, right? Uh, we're all talking about the kingdom of heaven, right? We're all talking about uh, being in the presence of God and being in the kingdom of heaven, to dwell in his place, right? Uh, to take to the deeper well, right? Those things, those are all key, key phrases. We're trying to usher in the presence of God and this new Jerusalem. And so uh, in Psalm 2, David is really... He's just really struggling with the same things that I think we struggle with here today. Like, why do these things exist, right? And then there's a resolution at the end of it. Um, so let's read this together. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here in this line, this is human opposition to God. Humanity is saying it is better than God. It knows better than God. Let us break our bonds from God and let us choose what we should do. In verse 4 it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. (laughs) He's laughing at us right now, right? The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See where we're going. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this right here, this David is prophesying about the return of the king, the king which is Jesus, right? It's the same as Zechariah. It's the same as the message we heard in Matthew 25. It's the same as in Revelation, right? Humanity has sinned, sinned against God, continues to sin against God. And he's saying that he has set his king, Jesus, on his hill, on Zion, right? the new Jerusalem. He'll be the king over all of us, and he can break us if he wants to. But that's not what he wants. He wants what he wanted in the beginning, which was to dwell in the garden, in the midst of us, to dwell in our midst, to be in the center of us, just as it was in Genesis 3. That's all he ever wanted. He created us to be in unity with him. He didn't create us to run in opposition with him. And so, in the last few lines of this, it says, kings be wise, be warned, O rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. It's a romantic gesture. It's what you would do with your wife or your husband, with your spouse. It's the same as being that bride of Christ, unity, right? Lest he be angry and you perish the way, for this wrath is quickly kindled, right? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So he's saying, look, I have offered you a path. The new Jerusalem is not here yet, the new earth is not here yet. The new heaven is not here yet, but I have offered you a path to it. This former generation didn't have it. That's worth noting. There were thousands of years where people did not have this. But this, Jesus, the point, the center, the point that changed it from B.C. to A.D., right, as we know it in scientific terms, the person in which we literally bounce all of our known times around is the point in which we have a place, 
He's bought it. He's paid the price for us. And all we have to do is return to him. As it says here, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Refuge is when you give yourself up, right? A refugee, for instance, has no choice of where they land. They don't choose it. Rather, they just accept it. They accept where they are. And that's how we're supposed to be, humble before God and accept the place that he's given us, the path he wants us to walk with endurance. To accept that, and then we will be blessed. We will be those who enter the kingdom, but we just have to give up our lives. And that sounds dangerous, and our natural human opposition doesn't want us to do so. But that's what we have to do. We just have to submit to God.